0: Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. I have half of the passage there and an outline for you. but We'll look at the whole chapter this morning, Lord willing. You know, throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and a bit in the New Testament as well, God will be referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's the third of the foundational patriarchs of the Old Testament through Abraham, God revealed his plan to bless the people. Uh, from those people would come the Messiah. Through Isaac, God revealed that he would perpetuate this seed eventually again through the coming Messiah. Isaac himself, uh, living through that time when his father offered him as a sacrifice, this pictured the giving of Jesus as a sacrifice Now through Jacob, through Jacob we'll see God make even clearer his intentions for the people of Israel through the 12 sons of Jacob who eventually through Judah, uh, the Messiah would come. But Jacob is not starting out the best. In chapter 27 we see how uh, for the second time he swindles his brother, he's always working an angle, he is a conniver, his name means supplanter. Uh, In chapter 28, though, this chapter before us, we see how God takes Jacob from being a worldly materialist to a personal believer in Yahweh. Now, he's not perfected by any means. This is Jacob. He'll struggle with his old self throughout his life, depicted here in the scriptures. But here in chapter 28, something happens, something that really has to happen for all of us at some point. Uh, We'll see how this unfolds in his life and then make some comparisons as we go. He goes from seeing God as a far off and almost a legend to being really close to him, the God who is near to him. Here as I read God's holy word, this is Genesis chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban the son of Bethuel the Aramean the brother of Rebekah Jacob and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there and that as he blessed him he directed him you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabeoth. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep, keep you wherever you go. It will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, every one of us is a materialist at heart until you change us. Until you give us spiritual sight. We think what we see is all there is to this life. Our values are shaped by this temporal age until you give us a glimpse of true spiritual, eternal reality. As we study your word, please awaken those who are stuck in the here and the now and thus blind to eternity. For those who know better because of your grace, show us how that we might live as not practical materialists, but instead as people looking to the eternal future that you have called us to. May our days be shaped and our years be shaped by this eternal view seen over by the Lord Jesus himself. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The opening of a new airport in Kansas City uh, brought me back to an assignment I received as a college student, probably my second year of school. My professor uh, for my sociology class, not one of my favorite classes, I won't lie, uh, he sent us to O'Hare International Airport. We had to take the subway to O'Hare and spend three hours sitting in some place in the airport and just watching people for three hours. After all, it's a sociology class. That must be what you do. People coming, people going, people coming, people going. The assignment was to try to imagine what these people we were watching, what they were thinking. To try to ascertain as much as we could about them just by the way we viewed them interacting or moving about at the airport. We're supposed to just stare at them and imagine their worldviews, I suppose. Could we tell by what they wore what they might believe? Could we tell by who they were and, what, and who they had with them something about their life? Now remember, this is before laptops and no phones. People were far more interesting to watch back in those days. Could we tell by what they were doing if their travel was for business or for pleasure? Could we see something in the way that they walked that revealed their level of urgency, their stress, their ambition? Could we see by their interactions how they valued other people? See, our professor insisted that just about everyone in Western society basically function like a materialist. He called them functional materialists. Now, on a philosophical level, what is a materialist? A materialist is a person who supports the theory that nothing exists except matter and its movements and its modifications. So matter, materialism, is all that matters. That which you can see and you can touch and you can manipulate and move, the here and the now, what you see is all there is. There's nothing after this. There's nothing outside of this. Nothing that we could have any impact over so it didn't matter even if it did exist. That's what a materialist is. On a practical level, a materialist considers material possessions, then, and physical comfort as more important than spiritual values. I'll bet that you know many people who are practical materialists. They live for the here and the now with no view of the life to come. It's even more prevalent in Western culture because we have so much stuff to immerse ourselves with, to busy ourselves with, to concern ourselves about. People live for the natural world with no realization about eternal life and what comes next. Now, when we meet the patriarch Jacob, compared to Abraham and Isaac, we see someone who is a practical materialist. He's a liar and he's a schemer. Yes, he has his past and his family story but he doesn't lock into the spiritual realities of it at this to this point we have not seen it at all he's a conniver he's a charlatan and he's trying to set himself up for the most possible physical blessing he can have he swindles his own brother twice so that he can gain earthly status and wealth ironically even though this is true and he's a materialist. That swindling and that conniving leads him to be on the run, so he can't even experience the materials he has acquired. He was living a life of wandering, running and unrest. Sure, his grandfather was Abraham, the great man of faith, who sojourned into the Lamb of promise, knowing he would never even own any of it, but he knew that eventually heaven awaited. That grandfather, with that spiritual, that spiritual background. Jacob doesn't have any of that. He's only for the here and the now, and that's how he operates. Anything to get what he wants in the moment. Yes, Isaac was his father. God met with Isaac personally as well. Isaac showed fruit of faith in his life, as flawed as he was. But Jacob's life to this point is filled with anxiety, unrest, wandering, and confusion. And it comes directly from his materialistic worldview. And this is true for those who live as practical materialists. Life in this world, for them, is a very scary mystery. And it's a scary mystery like that for everyone until we come to discover the God who is near. And that God grants us clear sight, spiritual sight, sight to the eternal that only comes through Christ. Jacob never presents as some deep spiritual giant but he does come to know God in this life. He comes to know him personally. In chapter 28 is the beginning of him coming to know the God who is not just the stuff of legend, but the God who is near to him personally. We see in Jacob what I would call a progression for many of us, maybe this is your story. He starts out as someone living on the run, living in anxiety. He's spiritually dull, spiritually unaware, blind to that which comes after this life. Then God meets him. And he comes to personally realize the truth of the good news about God. That as he knows God and his gospel, he can be rightly related with God. And this is shocking to him. It upsets his whole world. And he has to see things through different lens. But this spiritual sight starts to shape his life. And finally, you'll see him make a commitment. It's a commitment God didn't call him to make. It's just a response, almost a reflex, to now having spiritual sight. Coming from blindness to sight changes everything about his intentions to obey. We see all of this in chapter 28. Sure, we're going to see more of the old Jacob constantly struggling against the new Jacob as the chapters unfold. But make no mistake for all of us, we have to come to this place of realizing there's more than just what you see in front of you. There's more to this life than just the material stuff that we occupy so much of our time and energy and passion concerning. Now let's look at Jacob's life unfold here in chapter 28, and you'll see what I'm suggesting here. The chapter starts with anxiety as the backdrop. You remember in chapter 27, Rebecca, Jacob's Mother said, you got to get out of here. Esau wants to come and kill you. In fact, that's all Esau talks about is how he's going to kill you for stealing the birthright and stealing the blessing. He's livid at the scheming that Jacob perpetrated to gain these things from him. So Rebecca says, you got to get out of Dodge. you got to get out of here. Now, what an ironic thing. This materialist who does everything to get this stuff, but he has to run away because Esau is going to kill him. And by this time, Isaac, who favored Esau, realizes that Jacob is God's choice. And he doesn't want to stand in the way any longer of God's will because he sees it can't be stopped. So he also tells Jacob, you got to get out of here. You just feel the anxiety in Jacob's life. And that's the fruit of his materialism, the fruit of how he's treated people. And now he's on the run. Uh, He's spiritually blind and has to get out of this place. Verse 1, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now notice the change in Isaac. Isaac didn't tell Esau any of the sort. Even though Esau was his favorite, he let Esau marry two Canaanite women. Remember, this isn't about race. This is about their faith commitment. This is about who they were as people morally and religiously. And the Canaanites were the worst of the worst in that region. And Esau had already married two women, violating God's call to marry one wife. He marries two, and they're both Canaanite women. And Isaac recognizes Jacob's now going to leave. He's the chosen one. When you go, go where you can find a wife of like mind and faith. Arise, go to Padam Aram, the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. It's odd to us, but 4,000 years ago it wasn't so odd and they went to a clan that was known to them. It's where Rebekah came from. Isaac had come to peace with the fact that Jacob was God's chosen covenant carrier. Go back to Laban's house and find a wife there as you're leaving or fleeing from your brother. So this unrest, this anxiety, sends him on a journey, and the journey is not a spiritual one. Now, Isaac gives him a bit of a blessing, but this is not changing the way Jacob looks at a situation. Nevertheless, look at the blessing of the words that Isaac says. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. He's taking the words of the Abrahamic covenant that were first spoken to Abraham, then repeated to him. Now he's applying them to Jacob. Verse 4. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave Abraham. He speaks this blessing. This is an eventful marking for sure, but the reality is Jacob himself is still spiritually lost. There's a palpable anxiety about the life of Jacob that never fully leaves Jacob's life all the way to the end. But here he's purely on the run from Esau. He's not heading out on a spiritual pilgrimage now, he's doing something for pragmatic purposes. It's ironic, a materialist who gets legal rights to the materials, but he has to abandon them. That's always, by the way, what happens with the stuff we think will satisfy. It never does. And we see it and we feel it in the person of Jacob. Esau is gonna get his revenge. Jacob knows it. Isaac and Rebekah send him off. He has no security. He leaves to go back to Padan Aram to try to find a wife. Verse five, thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aram to Laban. Now, adding to the disarray of the situation is a checking back in with Esau. What's Esau up to as this all occurs? Remember, he's still livid. He's breathing out threats against Jacob. He catches what occurs. He's spiritually dead as well, completely dull spiritually. And so look at how he reacts. It shows his impulsivity. This is why he's so dangerous. Now, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and went away to Padam Aram. He sees the about face. Now, Isaac, who he knew loved him more, turns to Jacob, gives him a blessing. He sees both the parents take delight in Jacob in some way. He sees the direction you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Now, Esau's like, I've married two Canaanite women. I'll never gain back favor on this light. So, I'm going to go do something to fix this. Now, he's not spiritually aware enough to repent of anything he's done or ask his parents what he should do. He sees Jacob obey and he sees the acceptance he gets. So when Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, that's verse 8, verse 9, Esau went to Ishmael. It took as his wife, besides the wives that he had, he has a third wife now from the Ishmaelites. Now, they're not the Canaanites, but they're also not people of like faith, and they come from people God had rejected covenantally. Thinking he's making it better, taking it in his own hands, he only makes it worse, and he compiles his own erratic behavior. The life of the materialist, both in Jacob and in Esau, we see it here. The life of one who's spiritually blind, both men at this point. Not a life of rest or peace. It's a life that lives experience to experience. It keeps seeking satisfaction, never gets it with the next experience or the next thing or the next modification of matter, it always ends up dissatisfying, unrestful. A life that depends on owning more stuff, having more things, anxiety and fear about all those things and all that stuff. Such a life does not change until God steps in to change it. Come to verse 10 and we see this intervention on the part of God to meet Jacob, to show he's not a God of legend or myth. He's the God who is near. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. He sets out on his journey and he stops when he can't go any further because it's pitch black out. There's no city lights to guide him. He's in the dark. He's alone. He has to be afraid. He's got to Uh, wonder about the dangers around him. He's in a place that he's not seen before and it's not marked by anything. He's solitary and all he can do is lay down, feel around for a rock, put the rock to elevate his head a little bit and lay down and go to sleep. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and went to sleep in that place. Remember now, he's not making a prayer trip. He's not doing a spiritual journey. He's not looking for God. In fact, you can't get a picture of passivity that's greater than falling asleep in the dirt with a rock under your head. You can't get any more uh, disinterested in anything but your situation than he was. He's not sorry for what he's done. It makes no mention of him being uh, a seeker of God. This is where the commentator Candlish helps us setting up what occurs next. The writer said, now for the first time, at least now for the first time decidedly, he is to be apprehended or laid hold of by the Lord. He falls asleep on this hard uncurtained couch, but is to awake as a new man with a new life and energy, and new assurance of the divine favor and protection. Jacob is served heir to the Abrahamic covenant and the birthright blessing of the Abrahamic family. He didn't go to bed that way, but that's how he wakes up. And he didn't go to bed thinking this is what would happen, but God makes it so. Verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, first of all, the language should harken back to something we've read in Genesis before. Do you remember a tower that reached into the heavens? The Tower of Babel. This was that episode where people in a city tried to ascend to get in the face of God. It was an act of rebellion. We'll build this tower that ascends into the heavens so we can be like God and make a name for ourselves. In fact, that's what it says in Genesis 11. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. In ancient times, towers or pyramids or ziggurats were built to reach into the heavens to meet God somehow. But, of course, these always failed. They never went far enough, and there was seemingly no way to go to heaven from earth. This would be the materialist view. There's nothing beyond the earth. But now, because of this dream, there's a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reaches to heaven, He's laying flat on his back. He's not climbing it. But he views something. Angels of God were ascending and descending on it, up and down, into heaven and back to earth. Back to heaven and back to earth. So life is not materialism. There is a passage between heaven and earth, there is a link between God and man. And Jacob knows this is true because this is what is being communicated in the dream. But what confirms it is what God then speaks in this revelation. Jacob, This is where he meets the God who is near. It says in verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. On the top of the stairs is God, and he's reachable because of this ladder. And I am the God of all of this. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. He's still laying. He hasn't gotten up. He wasn't seeking God. He's still laying there, and God's speaking to him about this passage between heaven and earth. He's speaking about the blessing that he will pour out upon Jacob. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Remember what he told Abraham? Your offspring will be like the stars in the heavens. But Jacob's laying in the dust of the earth. Look over to your left and to your right. See all that dust? That much dust marks the spread of your people across the west and the east and the north and the south. You and your offspring shall all the families of the earth through them be blessed. Another promise of Messiah to come. Going to come through Jacob. Very personal now. This is not the God of legend. This isn't the God he had heard about. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac now speaking to Jacob. It's showing him that there is passage between heaven and earth on this ladder. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There's the immediate truth of the promise of keeping him in the land, but like the Abrahamic promise, there is a future eternal reality of taking the promised land that lasts beyond this material existence. This is revolutionary in the life of Jacob. It should be revolutionary in all of our lives when we go from realizing there's more than just the material. The God who Jacob thought was far off if he existed at all, is now to him very near. And I want you to note once again, I can't emphasize this enough. Noah did not seek God. God sought Noah. Abraham did not seek God. He was a pagan going a different direction. God sought Abraham. Isaac did not seek God. God sought Isaac. And here's Jacob, sleeping on a rock in the dirt. He wasn't praying. He wasn't seeking God. There's no spirit of seeking in Jacob, but God sought Jacob. God found Jacob. You did not seek God. He found you. And he made you his own. What made this so life-changing to Jacob? It completely It completely borned him again. Now, we wouldn't know how profound the latter vision is if there were not for some more revelation about this in the New Testament. It becomes even more profound when you examine it through the lens of the New Testament. In John chapter 1, the Lord Jesus is calling his disciples and he's assembling this ragtag group of individuals, fishermen and others, to be his first disciples who become apostles. Apostles. In John chapter 1, starting at verse 43, listen really close. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So they go to their friend or their relative, Nathanael Nathanael, we found the Messiah. We have found him, Jesus, salvation, Jeshua, and he's the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathaniel can't believe anything from Nazareth could be that prophetic, that messianic. But he, comes, he goes with them to meet Jesus. Verse 47 of John 1, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit or no guile. Jesus already knows him. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He knows this is Messiah. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you and I saw, saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Nathanael, you will see greater things. Now listen to what he says next. Jesus says to Nathanael, greater things than these you will see. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what's the latter? Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the latter. Jacob's seeing a picture of the access we have between earth and heaven. And it's Christ who is the mediator. This is what prompts the Apostle Paul to say, there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So now we see why this is so profound to Jacob. He's not a materialist anymore. He knows the supernatural is real. He knows that God is real. He's spoken to him. He's promised to him. And the way to God is clear. He's created a way for him in us to know him. And we know from the New Testament shining the revelation on it that this mediator, this Jacob's ladder, is Christ. And this borns us again. This changes us. This makes us know it's not just materialism. We know there's more to this life than simply what we see in front of us. It's true. We all get distracted by it, even believers. But in our moments of clarity and hopefully spiritual sanity, we come to this place on a regular basis to remember the spiritual is true so that our lives are not lived like practical materialists and it shapes what you learn here in his word and through this word preached, reminds us about the right perspective we're supposed to have on all the things that face us. God meets us in our experiences, even when we're not reaching for him. And this word of promise becomes central to Jacob's life for all the struggles he still has. God's word of promise of gospel truth is exactly what Jacob needed even though Jacob had not sought it. Maybe you didn't come here this morning looking for God's word, but you've just received it. And Jacob awoke from his sleep, it says in verse 16. This is his response. Surely the Lord is in this place. This isn't just material. He is here. He is with me. I just didn't know it. But now you know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The church would, could use a fresh encounter with the true God again. It would change how we would approach him. Jacob recognizes the personal nature of God's call upon him, and he see, sees God initiating this call. He was on a carnal pilgrimage to run away from Esau. Now everything has changed. And he describes it as a a dreadful occurrence to be in the presence of the living God. He was astonished. He was awestruck. He was terrified, no doubt. But he heard the words of promise come to him. He knew who he was, yet God still called him. That place, that meeting induced reverence and awe. In that meeting went on to shape the rest of his life. Now, if you look at verse 18 down to the end of the chapter, what you have is a response that's, what you would say is a, an expected response from someone who meets God. Now, please note, God did not tell him to make a vow in return. What Jacob does is a reflex to what he just heard. He hears gospel truth, and like any of us who really believe the gospel, we want to say to the Lord, what can I do now? What can I do? And that's fine as a reflex of, res- of gratefulness, and it should make sense that we would want to honor our Savior. But God nowhere is saying that by doing this, you've proven it or earned it. But Jacob responds. His life has changed. He wants to do things differently now, and he's going to struggle with this. He'll last, you know, about five minutes after this vow, no doubt. But the gospel promise never stops, and it keeps coming back into his life and keeps reshaping his purpose and his actions. It says early in the morning, verse 18, he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, poured out oil on top of it, one of these altars we see in the Old Testament, reminding of God's intervention. He called the name of the place Bethel, which is House of God, Beth House El, God. But well, the name of the city was Luz at first. He didn't care. He's renaming it. And Jacob made a vow. He said, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. I only want to say to Jacob, yeah, of course. Of course you will. What choice would you have if he does this for you? He's saying out loud something that God doesn't need to hear to honor. It's sort of the the concept of covenant renewal is we remind God of what he has said in his word, but the reminder is not really for God. It's a reminder to us what God has done for us and we're renewed again in that covenant of God's grace. It's not a commitment to earn this thing that God has given as a gift. It's a commitment to really properly respond to the beautiful grace and forgiveness he's given us. And we need to do this so regularly because we forget so frequently. Think about it. You come into the Lord's house and part of what you expect, you should expect, is some pronouncement of the good news of the gospel. Because you need it. Because you probably forgot the essence of it maybe even minutes after you left last week. Same with me. Now, I'm exaggerating a bit, but you know and I know that you can't go very long before we slip back into materialism or slip back into doing what we need to do to earn our way in this life of of merit that we think we're somehow coming up with, which becomes a depressing life eventually. We need a reminder and a refresher of the good news of the gospel that refreshes us and that wakes us from spiritual blindness and gives us eternal views to things. So now we look at everything different. We're accepted in him, in the beloved, and now we see a spiritual reality about this life you're living. The relationships you have have a spiritual significance. The job you have has a spiritual significance. Your marriage has a spiritual significance. Your hobbies have a spiritual significance. Your schooling has a spiritual significance. There is an unseen spiritual dimension to everything that your new birth has given you new perspective concerning. You know now what's true. Spiritual sight is life-shaping. It's sight that gives security beyond these brief days. Candlish, who I've quoted often, said, We seem to have here the instinctive impulse of the new creature under the regenerating or reviving influence of the Holy Spirit. Bethel, house of God, was about Jacob's realizing God's commitment to him. He was making a vow based on how God had proven himself. Beloved, life in this world is a scary mystery until we discover the God who is near and that God grants us clear sight through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your holy word and for the revelation that you have provided for us in your word. I pray, O Lord, that all of us would be refreshed in our minds about the full dimensions of this life we live. There's not just what we see But there's also the spiritual world, the spiritual realm, the truth of eternity, the truth of these things coming together eventually in the person of Christ in our lives. Lord, assure your people of their salvation today and bring those who are spiritually dull or blind or dead into spiritual life as only you can do through Christ. In whose name I pray, amen.